Hello podcasters and welcome to our special edition podcast uh, concerning the first ever shareholder class action to reach trial in the UK. That is the Lloyds H. Boss litigation. The subject matter of the case is of course the acquisition of H. Boss by Lloyds at the height of the financial crisis and the litigation was brought by a group of uh, disgruntled shareholders in the High Court of England and Wales. We are privileged this morning to be joined by two of the people, two of the principals who ran the litigation on behalf of the defendant at Lloyds Bank. That's Harry Edwards, a partner at Herbert Smith Freehills, and Sarah Penfold, one of our associates in our banking litigation team. The good news for us is that the litigation went in favour of Lloyds Bank, and uh, I'm therefore delighted to be able to welcome Harry and Sarah fresh from the court to tell us a bit more about the case. So without further ado, I'll pass over to my co-host, Kerry Morgan, who will take us through some questions for Harry and Sarah. Uh, yeah, that's right. Say thanks, John. We will proceed through uh, a few questions and pick the brains of Harry and Sarah. I'll kick off the first one. So for those who are unfamiliar with the case, can you give us a quick summary of the key facts and claims, please? Yes, I will try to keep it as brief as possible. The claim was split into two main parts, the recommendation case and the disclosure case. Dealing with the recommendation case first, that centred upon the allegation that the recommendation by the directors to the shareholders uh, that the acquisition was in their best interests was made negligently. And that part of the case was comprised of a number of arguments, and I'll just run through a few of them now. The first being the price paid for HBOS was too high, given the claimant's case that HBOS had no value. The second, that the due diligence done by Lloyds into HBOS was inadequate. And the third, which became the focal point at trial, was that the board failed to take proper account of key risks which they were aware of. And there were three which were focused on in particular. The risk that further capital would need to be raised in 2009, funding risks HBOS was facing and what those funding risks said about the state of HBOS's business, and the risk that the EU would require divestment of certain of the enlarged group's assets to address competition concerns. Dealing then with the disclosure case, the claimants alleged that the directors failed to provide shareholders with sufficient information, which is an equitable duty and made negligent statements by omission by failing to include certain information in the circular, which is common law duty. And this part of the case was also based on a number of arguments, but the main two related to HBOS's liquidity position. Those were that HBOS was in receipt of what was termed emergency liquidity assistance from the UK government, and also in receipt of a £10 billion loan facility from Lloyds itself. And the claimants alleged that that was material information which would have led to the realisation that HBOS was insolvent and without value. Given Harry and Sarah that this concerns the acquisition um, of one major bank by another, it's no surprise that the judgment is extensive. I think it runs to 280 pages. Can you give us an overview, uh, a short overview of the result? I'll do my best, John. So, uh, as Sarah explained, the case was split up into two halves. So taking the recommendation case first, that was roundly rejected. Uh, Essentially, having heard from the director defendants and some of the uh, co-directors of the Lloyds board, um, and having considered the expert evidence that was adduced, the court determined that this was a reasonable decision to recommend to shareholders. 
On the disclosure case, it was a bit more complicated. Uh, most of the elements of the claim were dismissed as not having needed to be disclosed. But there were two elements which uh, were found to have been omitted uh, in breach of the disclosure duties, those being the receipt of emergency liquidity assistance and the receipt of uh, a 10 billion loan facility from Lloyds itself. However, the claim uh, on that basis still failed, and that was for reasons of reliance, causation and loss. Essentially, the claimants couldn't make out that they had uh, relied on the statements in question, uh, which was perhaps not surprising given that 80% uh, of them had accepted they had not even read the circular. The claim also failed on causation grounds. So in other words, but for the breaches, the, they, the claimants couldn't show that the acquisition would not have gone ahead and therefore any loss that they could have shown uh, could not be shown to have been caused by the breaches. And finally, the claimants obviously had the burden of proving any loss that they had suffered. And having rejected their experts' approach to loss, the judge would not have found uh, in favour of any loss, even if the claim had uh, otherwise succeeded. Thank you, Harry. Very impressed you managed to summarise that in about three minutes, um, given the length of the judgment. So, um, thinking about the audience for uh, our podcast here, um, we've got in-house lawyers who are at banks, um, and they're really wearing uh, two potential hats either thinking about this decision in the, their capacity um, as being employed by a listed bank in the position of an issuer, or alternatively thinking about it from the perspective of um, an investment bank advising on capital markets transactions. So perhaps we could think separately for a moment about what this judgment means for banks in each of these roles. So if one of you could kick us off by thinking about perhaps three key implications or takeaways for issuers? Okay, let me take that one, Kerry. So for issuers, um, my three points would be as follows. So due diligence, uh, there was a big uh, aspect of the criticisms of the recommendation that were based on the adequacy or not of the due diligence exercise that Lloyd's undertook. Now, just to take you back in time briefly, um, this was a deal done at a very short notice. It was announced within three days of Lehman Brothers collapsing. And because of the opportunities it presented, uh, that was uh, necessary in the circumstances. But of course, the claimants used that to criticise the Lloyds board for essentially rushing through a recommendation without having done adequate due diligence. The court gave uh, some very useful guidance, I think, for issuers facing uh, takeover situations, whether or not they're as dramatic as this, and essentially said that the court needed to answer two questions. The first was whether or not the due diligence that was conducted met a market standard. And that market standard will, of course, not be a one-size-fits-all solution, but will reflect the circumstances and the nature of the target in question. And if that is satisfied, the court then goes on to ask itself a second question, which is, in the circumstances, was there anything additional that the board needed to do uh, in order to satisfy itself that uh, it had done adequate due diligence? And of course, in circumstances where 
boards will be advised by uh, uh, investment banks and other advisors. It will be it will be permitted to uh, take into account the views of those advisors and the teams that conduct the due diligence tasks on behalf of the board uh, to satisfy itself that it has done adequate due diligence in the circumstances. The second point uh, I would like to highlight is that the guidance that the judgment gives on the standard that a board will be held to when assessing its recommendation. And the easiest way to put this uh, test is to, to use the language of the claimant's expert, actually, who accepted that there was a fan chart of possibilities of uh, a course of action when faced with a, a situation such as this and a decision whether or not to recommend uh, a deal. The question for the court is whether the decision that was taken sat outside the range of reasonable possibilities or outside of that fan chart. Only if the claimants can establish that the decision sits outside the fan chart will they be successful in showing that the recommendation was negligent. I think that's very clear guidance for the board. The final uh, point I would highlight relates to the disclosure duty. And uh, as Sarah's explained, that is made up of uh, something called the sufficient information duty um, and uh, a duty not to negligently mistake things. And the judge gave some pretty clear guidance as to what needed to be done in, in order not to fall foul of those uh, duties. Whilst the circular did not need to contain every piece of information that the directors had in their minds when making their recommendation, it was important to balance both the positives of the acquisition and how good and strong a proposition an enlarged group might be with the negatives that the target might bring to that enlarged group. And it was for that reason and that reason alone that the ELA, the Emergency Liquidity Assistance, and the Lloyds loan were found to have been needed to have been disclosed in order to meet the sufficient information duty. Thank you, Harry. And what about from an advisor's point of view? So going back to Kerry's point about our audience, a lot of whom will be lawyers in investment banks. What about an investment bank advising somebody in, say, Lloyd's position or HBOS's position or indeed any issuer? Um, are there any takeaways for in-house lawyers or, in or investment banks in general? Yeah, so the directors and Lloyd's received support for the recommendation from investment bank advisors. And my first two key takeaways relate to the ways in which the claimants sought to undermine that advice. So the first was that the claimants suggested that the advice received from the investment bankers could essentially be discounted on the basis that the investment banks were paid a success fee and therefore they had an interest in the transaction completing. Um, the court, however, held that an overlap of interests doesn't necessarily mean that the investment bankers weren't professionally objective. Indeed, the court went a step further than that and found that a board which didn't take the advice of their investment bank seriously would almost certainly be negligent. The second way in which the claimants sought to undermine the investment banking advice was to demonstrate that the process actually undertaken by the investment bank advisors was inadequate. 
However, the court didn't seek to second-guess the work which had been done by the advisers at the time and didn't consider it would be necessary for the board to second-guess the work which had been done throughout the acquisition, absent a glaring error in the analysis or a failure to provide the advisers with key information. My final takeaway relates to litigation such as this more generally, and it's just to make the point that even if an investment bank isn't a party to the litigation, it should expect to be heavily involved in it and for the work it conducted at the time to come under quite a lot of scrutiny. And do you have any tips, Harry or uh, Sarah, for an in-house lawyer faced with um, a class action like this? Because looking at it from uh, outside, it's obviously... We, we can see what the result is, but it, it, it seems a, a mammoth bit of litigation. If you had two or three tips for an in-house lawyer faced with um, running a claim like that, what would it be? Um, so, lesson one, it's important to prove your case. Um, that might seem a little trite, but the court criticised the claimant's evidential approach on a number of occasions, particularly in relation to causation. For example, in relation to the suggestion that the outcome of the shareholder vote would have been different, it held that there was no factual basis for inferring that a simple majority would have voted against the acquisition, as opposed to the 4% of those in attendance who in fact did, had ELA been disclosed. And that was because there was no properly structured survey evidence of those who didn't vote or who voted in favour of the acquisition. There was no evidence adduced from big stakeholders with extensive voting rights. And there was no reason to think that the small number of self-selected retail or institutional claimants were in any way representative of the larger shareholder body. So that meant that even on the most generous assumptions about the evidence which the claimants adduced, that amounted to only 0.55% of the voting shares being voted differently, from which it couldn't then be inferred that a requisite swing in 1.4 billion votes would have occurred. And, and the corollary of what Sarah's just been talking about is that the claimants uh, needed to adduce a lot of expert evidence in order to seek to meet the requirements of proving their case. And as a result, uh, there are some interesting points that arise from the perspective of instructing experts. In this case was particularly complex, actually, from an expert perspective. There were around 11 uh, experts who were instructed by um, uh, both sides, not always uh, facing off one another um, in, in the sense that there were a number of disciplines where only one party had an expert on that topic. But I was just going to raise uh, three uh, short points about the uh, adducing of expert evidence that were really hammered home uh, in the judgment. And the first one, again, seemingly obvious, but making sure that your expert answers the right question. So uh, in the context of the recommendation case, as I've explained, the, the question for the court was whether or not the uh, recommendation was outside of this fan chart of possibilities. Unfortunately for the, the claimants, uh, their expert had actually addressed his mind to the question of whether he would have recommended the acquisition. A subtle perhaps, but very important distinction. When asked uh, for the first time, uh, it appears, on the witness stand, uh, what his answer to the right question would be, uh, he uh, responded that, in his view, uh, 
the recommendation given by the directors to the shareholders was right in the middle of the fan chart, which was obviously uh, a bit fatal to their uh, recommendation case. The second uh, observation would be to ensure a proper rigorous approach to testing experts' methodology, particularly where um, the methodology being employed doesn't necessarily uh, uh, strike you as the most obvious methodology to use. So one of the experts that the claimant sought to use in order to make good its causation case was a uh, an expert in financial journalism who the claimant said uh, would support the view that had emergency liquidity assistance and the Lloyds loan been disclosed to the market it would have caused the press to write uh, extensively about the folly of the acquisition and would have caused HBOS's share price to decline and the acquisition not to go ahead. However, the expert in question uh, used a methodology that the judge described as very strange. Essentially, he came up with a hypothesis and then tested that hypothesis using the evidence that was before him. And having found that the evidence did not disprove that hypothesis, concluded that the hypothesis was proven, which of course builds in a natural confirmation bias that uh, undermined it uh, in, 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 in its entirety. And I think just the absence of a proper rigorous test of that methodology uh, was uh, a big problem uh, for the other side. The final uh, observation uh, relates to the natural process that we're all familiar with of going through the selection of our experts and uh, it won't be uncommon at all for people to meet with uh, a variety of candidates before selecting uh, the expert they wish to use. Um, it will be uh, an, an obvious part of most litigation processes. The, the, the point borne out by this case is that it's well worth keeping a careful note of the people that you meet with. Um, we were able to uh, waive privilege over an attendance note of such a meeting uh, on the second day of cross-examination of the claimant's main expert because we'd met with him uh, two years prior to his selection by the claimants. Most unfortunately for this particular expert, uh, he had been recorded in that attendance note as putting forward views that were completely the opposite to the views that he'd expressed in his written report. And for obvious reasons, uh, he had great difficulty on the witness stand as a result of that circumstance. So just as a, a good practice point, it's always worth making sure that you keep those attendance notes of the meetings that you have with candidates before you select your expert. I think that's an excellent war story and as you say top tip there on keeping good attendance notes. Um, now I'm sure pretty much everyone listening um, will be wondering uh, whether or not the claimants are going to appeal but I understand the consequentials hearing that hasn't taken place yet so presumably we don't know yet whether or not the claimants are going to appeal. Yeah that's right. Okay well we'll wait and see. Drawing all this together, stepping back, do you think this judgment will make it more difficult or easier for claimants to bring successful class action, uh, shareholder class action claims? 
So I think the inevitable consequence of the difficulties that the claimants had, particularly on proving causation and loss, should help um, to defend these types of claims if they're brought in the future. And one assumes it is likely to make the claimant firms um, and the funders that typically sit behind these claims think twice about the um, chances of success in these types of claims before they're commenced in future. Well, thanks very much, guys. I mean, that's been a, a real whistle-stop whistle tour so far on um, on the judgment. Um, I understand that you're going to do a more detailed webinar. Is that correct? Yes? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good. Um, and um, in that, I think the scope will be to consider in a bit more detail the, um, the legal duties that are considered in the judgment and really what that means for corporates and their advisors uh, and what they need to do in order to satisfy those duties um, and perhaps some top tips for best practice uh, to put them in the best position to be able to defend any alleged breaches of those duties. So um, we will uh, be following up with that webinar and uh, we will post details of it on the blog as and when. And I think I'm right in saying, Harry and Sarah, that you're also offering a, a roadshow effectively um, to go to um, listeners and talk about the, the case in person. Absolutely, no problem at all. Excellent. Well, Luke, thank you very much for the um, this snapshot uh, today. I hope it was informative um, for you, our uh, podcasters. It certainly was for me. So, uh, for me and Kerry, many thanks uh, to our guest speakers, Harry and Sarah, and we look forward to speaking to you again very soon. Goodbye.